Previously, in part one of the Marcus Faisal story, you heard about a little boy's life before entering into the foster care system. You also heard about how he was then placed into the home of a couple who, from the outside, appeared to be loving and caring child care providers. But sadly, things weren't as they seemed. The incompetence and negligence of a foster care agency allowed for a vulnerable, special needs toddler to fall into deadly hands. The unimaginable truth of what really happened to little Marcus will not only horrify you, it will unquestionably rattle you to the core. This is by no means an easy story to hear as it is by no means an easy one to tell. What Marcus endured was not only cruel, it was barbaric. And this three-year-old little boy never had a chance. He was incredibly vulnerable, given his age and his developmental abilities, not to mention not being able to fully communicate. And that fragility was taken advantage of by those who were entrusted to care for him. By telling Marcus's story, as painful as it is, we hope that we are finally able to give this beautiful little soul the voice he never had a chance to have. Join me as we discover what really happened to Marcus Faisal and what we can do as a society to help prevent these kinds of egregious acts from happening to other innocent victims. So what really happened to Marcus? Liz Carroll suggested he had wandered off in the park they visited one sunny afternoon in August, a local park she had taken four children to, including Marcus. Thousands of community members combed the surrounding area, desperately hoping to find the toddler. Liz even pleaded with the public and held a press conference, asking for anyone that might have seen her that day or Marcus to come forward. Liz, David, and Amy also took lie detector tests, which David failed with flying colors. But they all continued to tell the same story and didn't waver. But shortly after the circus of events, Hamilton County Prosecutor Joe Dieter decided he had to do something to get justice for three-year-old Marcus Faisal. I said to the detectives, when was the last time anyone outside this family saw him alive? The detectives said, well, they went to Kentucky for a family reunion. 
Joe suspected Liz Carroll from day one of the investigation, and he asked Hamilton County detectives to go to Kentucky to find out if Marcus had been there for the family reunion. A reunion that took place days only after he was reported missing. What they discovered led Joe Dieter to take the actions he took next. We served Amy Baker, who was the live-in girlfriend, and Liz Carroll simultaneously in two separate police cars with forthwith subpoenas, which requires them to come to the grand jury immediately. Joe believed Amy would talk. I said, ma'am, you don't know me, but you're going to go in front of that grand jury in about five minutes, and if you lie to that grand jury, you're going to prison. Amy eventually abandoned her original story, the one she'd been insisting on for weeks. She finally admitted to prosecutors and the grand jury that Marcus had not gone missing as Liz Carroll had reported. He'd also never gone with them to the family reunion. So what happened? And where was Marcus? Joe Dieter describes the horror of what Amy told him next. They wrapped him in a blanket, like a cocoon, and wrapped him in packing tape, and threw him in a playpen. Marcus was left with no food or water for an undetermined amount of time. Amy stated in her testimony that on the weekend of August 4th, 2006, Liz had planned to take the family as well as Amy to her family reunion in Williamstown, Kentucky. Liz had apparently made it clear to everyone that she didn't want to take Marcus on the trip. She indicated to Amy and David that Marcus would stay there at the house. What is so incredibly disturbing and heartbreaking is that the procedure of wrapping and taping up Marcus and leaving him in the closet wasn't anything new to the Carols. They had done this before, and not just once or twice. They had done it regularly. The Carols had often left Marcus at home alone while they ran errands or went to youth sporting events. This part of Amy's testimony was an incredibly heart-heavy bit of information once it really started to sink in. The nightmare that this innocent little boy suffered day in and day out at the hands of the people that were meant to keep him safe. 
to imagine the fear and pain he must have endured. The terror he must have felt as they walked towards him with that tape in their hands. The same hands that hugged him were the hands that bound him and silenced his screams within the confines of a tiny closet. Surrounded by complete darkness, terrified and confused as to why these people kept abandoning him over and over again. He must have wondered what he had done wrong. What had he done to deserve this punishment? The Carols had successfully managed to keep Marcus confined and unattended so many times before. They had become confident in their tactics to subdue and manage Marcus as they went about their daily errands. So at 5.30 p.m. on August 4th, they packed up the car, including the family dog, and got ready to set out for Kentucky. According to Amy, Liz Carroll was the last one to get in the car and reported to both Amy and David that she could hear Marcus freaking out as she left. Temperatures that weekend had reached 88 degrees Fahrenheit, and in the closet Marcus was left in, likely ranged between 105 and 115 degrees. After enjoying an evening at the family reunion, Baker stated that David started feeling uneasy about leaving Marcus behind in the closet, so they decided to head back early Sunday morning at 6 a.m., two days later. When they arrived home, Amy said they found Marcus's lifeless body. Amy claims she insisted they call 911, but that Liz and David decided they wanted to get rid of his body and tell no one. That's when the three of them concocted their plan about Marcus going missing at the park. They decided that Liz would tell the story and that David and Amy would be in charge of getting rid of Marcus's tiny body. When it was Liz Carroll's turn to testify in front of the grand jury, she continued to cling to her story about Marcus wandering off and possibly being abducted. And she was telling that same kidnapping story that she's been telling for the last, you know, four weeks. Prosecutors then told Liz that they knew Marcus never went to Kentucky. And she just froze because she knew we knew now. Court documents state that Liz realized she wasn't fooling anyone anymore, but insisted 
that Marcus's death was an accident. She admitted that Marcus was bound with tape in a blanket and left in their closet, but said that she was innocent. They treated him like trash. It's a horrible thing that they did to this baby. They could hear him screaming in the closet when they left. Amy Baker's testimony not only finally revealed what happened to Marcus, but also where his body was now. Baker led detectives to Marcus's remains. She admitted to driving with David to a remote area in Brown County where there was a chimney from a collapsed house. It was located relatively close to where Amy's mother lived, a location familiar to Amy. Amy Baker reported that David repeatedly doused and burned Marcus's body. What was left of him, they then bagged up and dumped into the Ohio River. Liz Carroll's trial prosecutor, Woody Breyer, held up a picture of Marcus and said to the jurors, That was Marcus Faisal. What's left of Marcus Faisal would fit in this cup. And who did it? She did. And you know, they say you wouldn't treat a dog like that. And you know what? She wouldn't. She took the dog with her. She took the dog with her. Liz replied, the dog was alive. Liz later claimed that Marcus had been dead before they left on their trip to Kentucky. In fact, she stated she wasn't even home when he was bound and taped. She insisted she was out grocery shopping for their trip. On February 22, 2007, Liz Carroll was sentenced to 54 years to life in prison. David Carroll accepted a plea bargain and pled guilty to murder and gross abuse of a corpse. He was sentenced to 15 years to life. Amy Baker got immunity from the state of Ohio for her crime in exchange for her testimony, but has been charged with evidence tampering by Kentucky, who has jurisdiction over the Ohio River. But her attorneys moved to dismiss all charges against her and to ban any testimony given by her in the prosecutions of the Carrolls. Her attorneys also declared that the Kentucky prosecutor promised Ohio prosecutors to give Amy immunity in Kentucky as well. Her charges were dropped. From prison, David Carroll tells a different story, one that now matches up with the one Liz was now saying in her defense. What I really, really have a problem with is that my wife wasn't even home when, when any of this occurred, when any of it occurred. And she went on a stand and, and said that my wife was, my, my wife and I taped them up and we went on a family reunion. That's the problem I have because that's not, exa that's not, that's not exactly what happened at all. Ex exactly what happened is, we, yeah, we left them 
we left him when we went to family reunion, but he was already dead. Uh, Amy and I, uh, we wanted to have sex, got, you know, got greedy. Uh, Amy said, you know, take the kids outside, we'll put Marcus down for a nap. Uh, she was supposedly supposed to be putting Marcus down for a nap. Uh, we found out later on that, you know, my wife and I, when we found Marcus later on, that she wasn't actually putting him down for a nap. She taped him up and she, in a blanket, and um, he died. So I ran downstairs and I told my wife, I was like, he's dead, he's dead. She's like, Who, who's dead? And she was like, she was smiling at me because she didn't know, she, she thought I was kidding. And then after she seen my face was white, you know, she was like, she started freaking out and crying. I was like, what? She ran upstairs behind me. As soon as she turned the corner, she seen him. And she dropped her knees and she looked at me and she said, what did you do? Like blaming me. I said, I didn't do this. I said, she did it. Talking to Amy and Amy was like, I just forgot about him. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. My wife immediately goes to grab the phone. Amy grabs the phone. She's like, no, no, we can't. She's like, we can't call the cops. You can't call the cops. And Liz's like, well, I'm calling the ambulance. I'm calling the ambulance. Amy's going, no, he's already dead. It's not going to do any good to call the cops, the ambulance, or anything else, whatever. And Liz is like, we got to, we got to. So Amy grabbed the phone from her. Her name got into like a little argument. Amy started pushing her and grabbed the phone out of her hand. And she started saying, uh, you've seen what happened to Marcus. That can happen to your kids too if anything, if anything like this gets out. I apologize to all the public that, that helped in, this, in the search, and, and uh, I'm very sorry for, you know, every bit of my actions. Um, I apologize. You know, it, it's tough. It is tough. And I, I think about it. I, I have dreams about it. I have nightmares about it. Um, you know, I was on medication when I, when I first got here, and, you know, it was, it was helping out. And um, it's, I've had a lot of time to grieve. I've had a lot of time to grieve. You know, I've laid my soul and cried many, many nights. Um, you know, that's, and that, that helped, you know, that helped, you know, with the crying and the grieving. Uh, now, what I try to do is when I start thinking about it too much, I'll, I'll pick up a book or a magazine and I'll just try to read, just get my mind completely off it. That's the only way I can really deal with that. I, I honestly believe it was an accident. I believe that it was an accident that she done that. You know, I don't think she did it on purpose. I think that she just was in, you know, just made a stupid, stupid, stupid mistake. But, you know, it, it, still, don't, it still don't negate the fact that she needs to, to fess up to her to responsibilities, take responsibility for what she's done. Liz Carroll also spoke out from prison, and she said she wanted to testify at her trial, but that her attorney, Greg Cohen, kept her from doing so. She stated, I blame myself. I blame myself for my lies, because my lies are what got me into everything. Even with Amy's threats, I still had the opportunity to tell the truth several times. But she did go on the stand and lie, and even had the nerve to smile at me and wear my clothes at my trial. The prosecutors shouldn't be happy at all. The public shouldn't be happy at all. The public wanted justice. The public still hasn't gotten justice. Marcus was failed by every single adult that was responsible for his well-being, including the foster agency that was charged with carefully placing the toddler into a home best suited for his particular needs. Lifeway should have been more meticulous in their background checks and procedures. However, Krista Mendez, who investigates cases of child abuse and neglect of children in state care, tells us that no matter how rigorous the screening process is, determined and deceitful people can still get away with abusing children and the system. My name is Krista Mendez. I am an investigator for the state of Texas, and I specialize in investigations of abuse and neglect against adults and children with special needs and or physical disabilities that receive state services. 
I have 10 years of investigative experience in this area. In Texas, the basic requirements for prospective foster parents are simply that they be at least 21 years of age, they need to be financially stable, they have to complete an application, share information regarding their background and lifestyle, they need to provide relative and non-relative references and show proof of marriage and or divorce. Um, they have to agree to a home study, which includes visits to the home and all household members. They have to allow staff to complete a criminal background check and uh, an abuse neglect check on all adults in the household. They're also required to attend um, a free training that is specifically designed to teach about issues of abused and neglected children. But in addition to the basic requirements, they're supposed to have adequate sleeping space, have no more than six children in the home, and that includes whether it's their children or children that they might be providing daycare for. They have to agree to a non-physical discipline policy. They have to permit safety inspections of the home and obtain CPR and first aid certification. And they're supposed to attend 20 hours or more of training a year. And like I said, a home study is supposed to be conducted where a caseworker will come in the home and discuss the personal history, family interests, and lifestyle, childcare experiences, the type of children that the foster parents feel might best fit the home. But all of these are fairly simple. And the bottom line is that people lie. As far as references go, the person you are in public, probably not the person you are at home. I always think about that like the movie Mommy Dearest with Joan Crawford. Another issue is that throughout the U.S. right now, the number of children that are in foster care has greatly increased over the years, while at the same time, the number of potential foster families has actually gone down. Caseloads nationwide are rising right now. Agencies are understaffed. Even when they are fully staffed, uh, a lot of time they don't have sufficient resources to work with children whose needs are increasingly complex, um, especially the special needs children. Um, special needs children are actually particularly difficult to place. Uh, you have a lot of behavioral issues involved. They prefer to place them with relatives as much as possible, but that's not always an option. And there are actually some studies done that indicate that children and adults with all types of disabilities are abused more often than children and adults without disabilities. Uh, there was actually one study that found that children with intellectual disability were at twice the risk of abuse compared to children without disabilities. And abusers are always abusers. They will take advantage of the system every step of the way. They will also take advantage of individuals who have problems with speaking, hearing, people who don't understand social situations very well. Um, and Marcus would be a prime example of that. One of the biggest issues, I think, when these types of situations, quote-unquote, fall through the cracks, is that children and adults with intellectual disabilities face a greater risk of abuse or neglect going undetected, and that's actually for a number of reasons. It's kind of common knowledge. Some of the most common signs of physical abuse are going to be in the form of injuries, you know, cuts, fractures, lacerations, bruising, um, abnormal bruising, usually with patterns. Um, as far as neglect, it's it's going to be more like malnourishment and, and poor hygiene. A lot of times, I think that the injuries that people 
witness the visible signs of injuries aren't initially associated with any type of abuse or neglect um, because a lot of these injuries, unfortunately, can be quote-unquote explained away by the abuser as being a result of some type of behavior associated with their disability. Um, a lot of individuals with intellectual developmental disabilities display self-injurious behaviors. You'll see them most commonly as head banging, scratching, or biting themselves and so on. So it's fairly simple for an abuser to explain that away as being, you know, associated with their own behaviors. Another big indicator that something is wrong or that abuse and neglect is occurring is a change in an individual's baseline behavior. And really what that means is a change from their everyday self, um, something noticeable. And in an average, average functioning individual, those changes in behavior are, they're going to be much more noticeable. And they're going to be able to tell you what's wrong if you ask them, you know, why the change in the behavior. But in an individual with an intellectual developmental disability, behaviors can be more unpredictable and sporadic. Um, many of them also have coinciding mental health issues um, like depression, uh, mood disorders. So an abuser might even be able to explain away those behavior changes just by attributing them to the individual's disability instead of abuse. In addition to all of that, children and adults with intellectual and developmental disability are are very easily suggestible. They might even be viewed by some people as untrustworthy, like especially when the report kind of involves abuse that seems improbable, if that makes any sense. If it just seems like, you know, that couldn't have happened. The sad truth is that, yes, it very well could have, but it's very easy for an abuser to be able to say that a child or adult with intellectual or developmental disabilities simply confused or just doesn't know how to communicate what really happened. The only way to truly find out that abuse neglect is occurring is for people to pay attention and to come forward and report. No agency in any state can take any action unless we know. That is literally the only way. If you have witnessed abuse or neglect, or you even suspect that abuse or neglect is occurring, regardless of what the abuser tells you, you have to come forward. Teachers, daycare workers, doctors, other family members or, or friends have to bring attention to it. Um, we can't take any steps forward until we have a launching pad of information. Funding is a huge issue. Um, even when the agencies are fully staffed, they don't have the resources they need, which allows many, many people to fall through the cracks without the U.S. or even state government realizing that there are cracks that people are falling through. But like I said, the only way for us to be able to take any step to prevent this or to protect any individuals is if we know. We can't take the um, if it ain't broke, don't fix it approach to abuse and neglect of these individuals. August 10th, 
Days after Marcus had died, a caseworker from Lifeway actually came to the house to see Marcus. However, Liz Carroll turned the caseworker away, saying that Marcus was sick. Had the caseworker insisted on seeing Marcus before leaving, the tragedy of what happened to Marcus may have been discovered far sooner. Lifeway for Youth apparently had no prior knowledge of David Carroll having bipolar disorder or about when he was arrested for a domestic violence charge. Another failure in the system that the responsibility was on the foster parent to report any criminal charges. There are a lot of people that I deal with on a daily basis that are just like the people reacting to Marcus's story. That couldn't happen. Surely that couldn't happen. Surely no one did that. But it does happen, and it happens every day, and it happens in some of the most unlikely scenarios. And you know, as far as our investigations go, thank God for nanny cams. Thank God for the new thermostats, the best thermostats that have video footage in them. And thank God for the people who are willing to stand up and talk. We do have a lot of issues in our investigations. People are scared to talk. It's not that they don't want to talk, it's that they're scared to talk. There are people in the community that don't want to be viewed as the nosy neighbor. Um, and what I say to that is be the nosy neighbor. If you suspect abuse or neglect in any way, you be the nosy neighbor. You stick your nose where it belongs. You, you can't take the approach that it's none of your business because it is. It's everybody's business. We're dealing with individuals who can't protect themselves. They're the most vulnerable population that we have. And then combine that with being a toddler, that's probably the most vulnerable person I could possibly think of. They rely on adults even more so than, let's say, an average functioning child. They rely, they rely on adults even more so for their care because there are so many things that they can't and won't ever be able to do for themselves. Marcus's death has since led to a reassessment over the placement of foster children in Ohio, as well as other states. Following an investigation of Lifeway, the foster agency had its license revoked as a result of their negligence in Marcus's case, as well as other children's cases. Legislation has also been changed in the state of Ohio. very small children is that they still do love unconditionally. And so even if they can't speak, there's not always that desire to speak about it. Um, and if it's, it's abuse that's been happening since they were born and no one's ever told them any different, then that's all they know is they're not. At the beginning of this episode, we stated that this wouldn't be an easy story to hear nor to tell, but we felt it was a necessary story to tell in order to give this little boy a voice, a voice that can teach us through his very short life all the ways in which our society fails vulnerable children on a daily basis. 
this story has undoubtedly saddened you and probably angered you. But we hope, more than anything, it will ignite your determination and passion to find ways in which you can be an agent of change in your own communities so that no other child ever suffers like this again. In the hands of someone that was meant to care for them and love them. You can keep the spirit of Marcus alive by turning this tragedy into something that can help another innocent child. If you suspect or know of a child in your community that might be experiencing neglect or abuse at the hands of their caregiver, we encourage you to reach out to your local child protection services. In most states, there is going to be one specific hotline. It'll be a statewide abuse neglect hotline. You can find it somewhere. You can tell someone. We won't be adding any extra content at the end of this show because we really wanted to leave the last thought for everyone on Marcus. A precious child whose life was taken before he had the chance to experience the beautiful things in this world. Let's all keep the spirit of this precious little boy alive in our hearts.